Let me uh, read the story of Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an open window in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but then they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. 
a remarkable story of conversion. And I believe that when we talk about conversion, this concept, this theological reality of someone converting, I, I think that many people misunderstand today what conversion is. When, when I talk to people and, and the idea of conversion comes up, people don't quite get what it means biblically. I think one of the things people often think of conversion is that it's, it's just switching churches or church traditions, you know, like I was raised Catholic, but then I got married and my wife was Jewish, so I converted to Judaism, which kind of means now my kids go to Hebrew school instead of CCD, and they get bar mitzvah instead of confirmed, and we go there instead of here, but, but, but it's more like switching denominations. I mean, I've had people who started attending South Shore Baptist Church say, hey, I'm converting to Baptist, you know, so, so it's sort of perceived as switching church churches, and and although that obviously is a kind of change, biblical conversion, the kind that we're talking about here, is something much deeper, much more profound. Uh, I, I even think maybe today some people distrust or, or hold in suspicion the whole concept of conversion, especially in our age of tolerance, where, where, where sort of the chief virtue is letting everyone be just the way they are. And, and so this idea that someone to be converted is kind of viewed negatively, like, hey, are you trying to convert me? You know, I, oh, those Christians drive me crazy. They're always trying to convert everybody. They're sending missionaries around the world. Why can't they just let people have their religions and their cultures and just everyone respect everyone and stop trying to convert each other? And so, so for some, I think even this idea of conversion is viewed very negatively. It's viewed with suspicion as if it's a kind of Christian version of the, the smarmy, uh, you know, used car salesman who's trying to, to sweet talk and deceive people and trick them and find people who are weak and prey upon them and trick them and suck them into the church and they go to the church and give money and they control their lives. And well, anyway, that's the, the hyper-skeptical view of that. And I have to say, if that's what conversion is, well, I don't want any part of that either. That holds no interest to me, to manipulate people and trick people. But biblical conversion, the real deal that we see here in Acts, is, is something utterly different. It's not just switching what faith community you go to once a week or once a whatever month, uh, nor is it some kind of uh, Christian telemarketing script where we get someone to buy the Jesus plan or something like that. Biblical conversion is a supernatural act of God upon the soul that causes a person to have faith in Jesus Christ. Biblical conversion is a a miraculous uh, incursion of God's power into an unbelieving soul such that that person who formerly didn't have faith in Christ has faith in Christ. It's an internal transformation of the heart by the power of God supernaturally. And that's what we see here in, in Saul. Uh, His conversion, his conversion in some ways, as we're going to see, is unique. There's things about Saul's story that aren't like our story, that that are special to Saul's story because he's he's being called to be an apostle. And so there's things here that are sort of apostle-y that not every Christian should expect. And yet I also think that there are many things about Saul's conversion that are normal because, well, he's being converted, and so conversion is conversion. And we can see it here in his story. So let's look at this story. The story falls into three parts. Uh, the first, first part, verses 1 to 9, um, well, the first scene of this narrative, we'll say, uh, well, I'll, I'll describe this as Jesus confronts Saul. 
This is in verses 1 to 9. Jesus confronts Saul. And we get a glimpse of Saul here, pre-conversion Saul. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. You remember, we met him before, by the way, before chapter 9. We met him at the end of chapter 7. Do you remember that story? We studied that a couple weeks ago. At the end of chapter 7, we find the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. Stephen's being killed, and he's being stoned to death. And there's Saul at the stoning, and Saul is the coat check guy. And he's like, hey, all right, you know, we've got a stoning here. There's martyrs. Hey, give me your coats. Here's your number. I'll keep your coat for you. You don't want to be impeded as you hurl stones. So, so he watches over the coats and sort of is like, yay, let's get rid of Stephen. He, he's, he's participating. And then after that, after Stephen's killed, a general persecution breaks out against the church, and he's one of the guys leading the charge. Well, now that's not even enough for Saul. He gets permission from the chief priests to go to Damascus, which is a city uh, on the northern end, uh, way at the northern end of Israel. And, and he gets permission to go there and hunt for more Christians. So there he is on the road to Damascus. I love what it says in chapter 9, verse 1, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You know, if you had to think of adjectives to describe Saul, what adjectives would you use for pre-conversion Saul? angry, uh, vengeful, things I think of, murderous, um, hardcore, (laughs) right? He's not like playing around. He is all in. He's fanatical. He's hell-bent. This guy will not be stopped. He sees that he's on a mission from God in his mind. These people are, are a distortion and an an infection, uh, you know, a cancer within Judaism, and they need to be eradicated for the good of, of God's name. So in his mind, he's, he's serving a higher calling and a higher purpose. But there's a, a, a fire and a, uh, a dangerousness about this guy. And that's when Jesus confronts him. And Jesus confronts Saul on the way to Damascus. Suddenly the light shines Saul falls to the ground. The voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's like, who are you? What is going on? And then those words in verse 5, which are utterly life-changing. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As I read those lines and I read the story, I try to imagine the shock that Saul must have felt at that moment. It must have been tectonic, how, how huge this shock would have been in his soul. You know, I, I'm surprised he just didn't keel over right there. It's so big. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And suddenly this fanatic realizes that everything he's been so passionately fanatical about has been totally in the wrong direction. That this guy who is on a mission for God is, you know, actually fighting against everything God is doing. C- could you imagine the, the shock and awe of this moment for him? I mean, you know, who are you? I'm Jesus. Wait a minute. That means you're alive? Means, wait a minute, you're resurrected? Wait a minute. That means everything that those meddlesome, pesky followers of the way have been preaching in Jerusalem about the resurrection, that's actually true? Whoa. Imagine the shock. Or notice how Jesus appears. He, he appears, look, a light comes from where? From heaven. 
And, and so you have this light from heaven and, and the appearance and the voice of Jesus coming from the shining light in heaven. Now, in, in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, uh, there are times when someone appears in shining light from heaven and people fall down. Who is it that does that in, in, the, in the Bible? It's God. <laughs> you know, we call this a theophany. That's what theologians call it. A theophany is an appearance of God, and theophanies have a certain pattern. You know, God appears, and the person falls to the ground, and then there's some comforting words given to the person, and, and sometimes the person is told what to do. The, it's often the prophets, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah, have experiences like this. There's, there's something kind of, kind of similar to prophetic call stories here where the prophets were called, and now here's the Apostle Paul being called. But, but here's the point. There's a theophany taking place, and at the center of the vision of God is Jesus. This must have just blown his mind. You know, here's the guy who is persecuting the name of Jesus all for the sake of God, and then he suddenly discovers that Jesus is God. Whoops! <laughs> you know? Wham! The shock. And then, you know, to top it all off, this Jesus so closely identifies with his people that, uh, that to persecute them is to persecute him. Why are you persecuting me? What do you mean? Well, you're persecuting my people. I'm the head, they're the body, I'm the groom, they're the bride. I mean, you know, we're like this, and you mess with them, you mess with me, and you can't separate it. And so to think that all of his persecuting was actually persecuting Jesus, who is God. Wow. I, I just, you know, I imagine like his circuit breakers in his brain just all blowing, you know, all the fuses at once. <laughs> you know? I am, it's, it's like a lightning strike that goes into your house and melts the motherboard in your computer because you don't have a surge protector and it melts it. And suddenly the motherboard of his worldview is just fried and he's like, ah, oh. you know. It, in fact, we know he goes into Damascus later for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. This guy was fried by this experience. And then he gets up, the vision ends, and he can't see. He's blind. The blindness is interesting. There's a, an emphasis on here. He's blind. Then we know on the next panel that we'll look at in a minute, he gets his sight back and something falls from his eyes. The scale fell from his eyes. That's where we get that figure of speech from. But, uh, but yeah, he's blind. What, what about this blindness? I think that the blindness has a kind of two, two-layered significance. I think the one layer is obviously he literally was blind. He physically could not see. And, and the reason is because he, his literal physical eyes had just literally physically seen Jesus. You know, this wasn't a hallucination. This wasn't just some kind of visionary trance or something. Like he, Jesus revealed himself in his glory to Saul's physical eyes, and he went blind from that. Um, because remember, one of the characteristics of an apostle, one of the, the sort of the qualifications to be an apostle is that you had to have seen the risen Jesus Christ. And so here's Saul getting his credentials the hard way. He's, he's seeing Jesus, but he's seeing Jesus in all his glory, in his divine glory, and, and now he can't see. But I think that there's a second layer to the blindness, and, and it's so fitting because it shows us that Paul has been blind this whole time that he thought he knew what was right. He thought he knew what was true. He thought he was doing the right thing. He, he was like a man running a marathon full speed out in front of the whole pack, but the guy's blind and doesn't see he's running right for a cliff. You know, he, he's all in. He's all enthusiastic and passionate, 
But he's blind. He doesn't know where he's going. And so he's, he's gone the wrong way. He's about to run into a wall. He just hit the wall. So he's blind. So he's not just physically blind. He's spiritually blind. And the argument I, I, I want to make this morning is I think that whenever somebody is truly converted, that their experience is like this. Not totally like this. It's unique. Like we don't, you don't necessarily have to see Jesus with your physical eyes. I've never seen Jesus with my physical eyes. I, I've never heard God's voice audibly with my physical ears. I haven't had that experience. Some Christians claim to have had experiences like that. Uh, I have no way of knowing. I, I just know I haven't experienced it. I know most Christians I know haven't seen or heard Jesus with physical eyes and ears. There's something special about what's happening to Saul because, well, again, he's being called to be an apostle. This is like a major summoning in his life that, that God is doing, and there's things taking place. Um, and I've never physically been blind. When, when I was converted to faith in Jesus, I didn't have some, uh, one of my senses get shut off for a while or anything like that. So there's things about Saul's story that are unique. And yet, I think that, that there is something common about what happens in every true conversion. And it's this. In every true conversion, the risen Jesus himself confronts our hearts and our souls with who he really is, and we finally get it. We finally go, oh, you really are the Son of God, the Savior, the risen one. You, oh, you are. And we we believe it. It, it's, it shines into our hearts. Let me show you another passage of Scripture that I think is really interesting in light of this. Put a bookmark here in Acts. I'm going to come right back to it. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I wish I had more time to totally dig into the 2 Corinthians 4 passage. It's really cool. But it's on page 1144. I just want to show you a few things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 on page 1144. Here's where uh, Paul, who is Saul, same guy, changed his name at some point. Uh, Paul is describing conversion. He's trying to describe the, the eh, mechanics of it, for lack of a better word, how it works. And, and it's interesting that he uses, he uses language that sounds like his own conversion experience. It's, it's as if that conversion narrative became a kind of paradigm for what happens to every person who gets converted. So look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, the God of this age, that, by the way, is not talking about God, that's talking about the devil. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So so this is the natural condition of every one of us pre-conversion. Every single person pre-conversion, including myself, is blind, spiritually. We hear the name of Jesus, and we're like, okay, okay, great. And we, you know, we don't don't see it. We don't get it. Um, You know, people tell it to us, and yeah, we, we, you know, say, okay, well, maybe that's true. Um, But but, but we don't totally buy into it. we don't believe it with our hearts. And it can look a lot of different ways. Some of us, the blindness is very hostile to the name of Jesus. You know, maybe, maybe that's sort of your story, where you came from or where you're even at today. You're just very skeptical of the whole thing. It's like this, you know, Jesus stuff. I mean, it's kind of a myth. It's kind of a legend. It's sort of a crutch that people latch onto to help them through life. But it's not scientific. It's not rational. It's not provable. Sane, smart, educated people don't believe this stuff. It's more for people who are weak and have struggles or get tricked into it. And so maybe that, that's your view is that, 
you're just like, yeah, I don't believe these, these things. I, I, in fact, I think it's kind of, you know, a, a bunch of uh, uh, you know, baloney. I, I don't believe this stuff. Or maybe, maybe you were raised with a view of Jesus uh, that, that's more positive, but it's not quite the view of Jesus that we have here in Acts. Maybe you were raised in a Muslim background, and you were taught that Jesus is a prophet, a great prophet, just not the greatest prophet, and certainly not God. But, but a great prophet. Or maybe you were raised in a, a kind of one of those the sort of quasi-Christian sects like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphian that, that have a kind of Unitarian view that says, yeah, there's God and there's Jesus, but Jesus isn't God. He's, you know, just an exalted sort of being or something, but he's not quite there. And so you, you have, you, you don't quite buy into this view either of Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, God in human flesh. Or maybe, maybe what blindness looks like for you pre-conversion is what I think it looks like for a lot of people. Most people I talk to, at least my friends, my neighbors, people I ever have a chance to talk with whenever those conversations actually come up uh, here on, you know, on the South Shore and I'm hanging out with people, is, is it's more like this. It's like, um, Jesus is he's great. I'm not anti-Jesus. Fine, you know? He's one of the greats. <laughs> he's like Mother Teresa. He's like, you know... Um, yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. He's like uh, Mahatma Gandhi. He's awesome. You know, he's like one of those people who tried to teach us all to love each other and be nicer to each other and be good. And of course I'm pro-Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't be? He's one of the great guys. I mean, I personally don't follow him. I'm doing okay. You know, I've got money. I've got a job. I've got a house. Pats are doing great this year. I mean, things are great. You know what I'm saying? And so, and I'm glad I'm glad that some people have found Jesus, whatever that means, and I'm glad that's helping them. I personally don't need that because I've found some other things. And so, you know, you, you got your thing. That's cool. Happy for you. Some people got their thing, and I got my thing. And, you know, as long as we're all good, we're all good. And so it's a view of Jesus where he, it's positive but kind of I, I don't need him because I'm fine over here. And if you need him, great, whatever. I don't really get it, but it's good for you. Could be worse. You could be following other things. I'm happy you're following Jesus, whatever. And and that's a kind of blindness. Because you don't see the glory of God in Jesus. Oh, let me give you one more kind of blindness. Try this one. What if you've been raised in a Bible teaching church? And from infancy, from the nursery, from children's church, you've actually been taught the biblical teaching of Jesus. From a young age, growing up in Sunday school and going to vacation Bible school and all that, you've been taught that he's the Son of God and the Savior and he's Emmanuel, God with us, and the, the Trinity even, you've somehow learned that. And, and, uh, and, and you're a good Christian kid, you know, you go to church, your parents make you go and all that, and you're fine, you go to youth group or Sunday school, and, and you know all the right answers. So if someone were to ask you, is Jesus God, you'd be like, theological answer, yes, he is, correct. You know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, he is, Correct. Do you know him? Do you know him? Or is it all just the right theology? I'm not anti the theology. I'm just saying it's got to make that infamous one-foot journey from here to here. Do you know him? Or will you be one of those people on the last day, the judgment day, where Jesus says, I don't know you. And you go, well, no, I know who you are. You're Jesus. Yeah, you know who I am, but I don't know you. So, So that... Conversion is 
is a revelation of Jesus upon the heart. But before conversion, we don't see it because, as it says here in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we're blind. But look what happens at conversion. Look at verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We preach the gospel. And then verse 6, for God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in other words, conversion happens when God supernaturally, like on the first day of creation, says, let there be light. And boop, the lights come on. And suddenly, I I see the glory of God, and I see the glory of God specifically in Jesus. And now I look at Jesus that maybe I've been told about from my friends, or I grew up hearing about in Sunday school, and I knew all the right answers. But suddenly, I look at Jesus, and I go, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And, And when that awareness happens, when that faith and that belief happens, It's because there's been a supernatural work of God in the soul that just turns the light on. And, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. I have faith. You know, people sometimes ask me, like, why do you believe in Jesus? And I I got, like, two answers for you. You know, I can give you the, all right, let's have an argument about archaeology and the historical reliability of the Bible, and here are the arguments for why the resurrection is probably a historical thing, and it makes a lot of sense, and I I can argue all that, and that's all helped me, but that's not why I became a Christian. It was just once I was blind and now I see. I was listening to a sermon and I believed. I can't tell you why I believed. Well, I can now that I read this because God gave me insight. That's what, that's what conversion's like. Maybe you hear that and you say, well, then why do we even preach the gospel? Why do we have to go out and evangelize anyone if God just turns lights on? Well, that's how God turns the lights on. That's the delivery mechanism for how the, the light gets there. We, we can't turn the lights on for anybody. I can't convert anybody, neither can you. God does that. But we're the, you know, if, if, if the light comes from God into the human soul, then the people who, who preach the gospel and share it with their friends and neighbors, we're like the, the fiber optic cable that connects heaven to earth. And, and God uses us as that, that conduit through which the light shines. So when you say to your neighbor, your friend or whatever, hey, uh, I know this is going to sound weird, but my church is into this whole thing this year, like read the Bible with someone. I'm glad, would you ever be interested in reading the Bible with me like once a week or every other week? I'm sure you wouldn't. I'm sure you wouldn't. And your friend goes, no, actually I would. And you're like, you would? You know, okay, well, well let's do it. So you start reading the Bible with your friend. And, and as you're doing that, you're, they're reading the Bible with you. And at some point, God, now the conduit's open and God's word is, is there and God can turn the light on when and how he wills. So our evangelism and our prayers are critical, not because we convert anyone, but we're the conduit through which the converting power flows. And that's why Paul says, that's why he preached the gospel. Verse 5, that's the connector. And every true convert, every person who's truly been saved, knows that verse 6 is real. We've come to see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It may have been a dramatic conversion, it may have just been something more quiet. But suddenly we see, suddenly we believe. Now there's love for Jesus. Now there's faith and obedience. It's like uh, uh, one guy told me in, in the church here, he was converted just while he was in a church service here. And, and he said, it was like I was sitting in the service and suddenly 
a pilot light of love for Jesus flicked on in my heart. And I was like, I love Christ. I believe. And he was converted. That's conversion. That's how it happens. It's like the story Godwin told last week. Anyone here last week hear the, hear the sermon Godwin preached? And I, I listened to it. I was gone, but I listened to it online. It's such a good sermon. But he was, he was talking about an old member of our church named Bob McDonald. He's passed away now, but uh, Bob was, became an elder of our church. He was one of the early pillars of our church. Bob was just a dock worker uh, up at Quincy and, uh, you know, uh, hard-drinking, fighting kind of guy. And the pastor cornered him one day in his house and handed him the Bible and gave him a verse. And I, I always wish when Bob told me the story, I always wish I'd remembered to ask him what the verse was. But now I can't ask him until we get there. But anyway, Bob, uh, and the pastor shoved a verse in his face and said, read it. And so Bob read it. And he goes, what does it mean to you, Bob? Nothing. He said, read it again, Bob. Bob read it again. What does it mean to you? Nothing. He gave it to him a third time. He says, read it again, Bob. And I was like, okay. And he read it. And as Bob tells the story, he says, I was instantly saved. I just suddenly believed as the word of God came through. And it might be a dramatic story like that. You may not be able to pinpoint the time and the date, but at some point, the light comes on and Jesus converts. So going back to the book of Acts, that's the second part of the story is that after Jesus confronts Paul, Jesus converts Paul, Saul. Saul not only had the physical light shining in his eyes, but the this spiritual light we're talking about also shone into his soul so that his heart was changed. So that's why when, you know, Jesus, I love, <laughs> love this conversation with Ananias and Jesus. It kills me. But, you know, like, I want you to go see Saul on Straight Street. By the way, you can still go to Straight Street today. It's still in Damascus. You can walk down Straight Street where Saul was. And uh, he says, go see Saul. And, you know, I get to love Ananias. He's like, ah... Uh, Saul of Tarsus, you, did I hear that right? Um, you mean the guy who's like here to arrest people like me? Huh. You want me to talk to him? Uh, are you sure about this? But the Lord says, go. Verse 15, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for me. Or in other words, don't worry, Ananias. I'm converting him. Yeah, yeah, that's who he was, but I'm converting him to something different. It's like in chemistry when, you know, chemical conversion, some of you guys have a chemistry background, you know, something is a, a certain molecular structure, and then it's converted through a process, and on the other side, the, the substance is a different chemical structure. Its, it's molecular structure is different. He's converted. He, his molecular structure of his soul was persecutor, now it's going to become preacher, it was, you know, masochistic guy who, who wants to, uh, uh, you know, harm people and harm and cause suffering. Now it's going to be guy who willingly suffers for the gospel. I'm converting him. So go see him because I'm changing him. Jesus confronts us and Jesus changes us. And of course, we can't see the change. It's invisible. It's a secret work in the soul. It's not something you see happen necessarily. But there are evidences of conversion. Look at the evidences of conversion with Saul. Verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Right away, he's, Saul's become part of this new family of God. And, and there's this, this new identity that he has that Ananias affirms. That's, that's one of the ways, you know, you, you feel your conversion. How do you know if you're converted, if it's a secret thing in your soul? Well, all by the changes, Right? 
And that's a weird one, is that I meet a new Christian anywhere in the world, I find out they love Jesus, and I, I want to hug them. It's wicked weird. <laughs> but it's real. You just, you know, you go to meet some new Christians, you're like, hey, you're a brother. You just feel this love, and it's weird, but it's, but it's wonderful to feel this, this affection in Christ with another person who loves Christ. It just happens. Brother Saul. A second uh, evidence of his conversion, of course, is that the scales fall from his eyes. So this is kind of part of his exceptional story. This doesn't happen to everyone when they're converted, but in his case it was. Third evidence of conversion, he gets up and he's baptized. And of course, the Baptist pastor and me can't help but point out that baptism follows conversion. It doesn't precede it. We don't baptize babies because I don't know if they're converted. Baptism is an evidence and a sign of being converted. It doesn't convert you. It has no power to do that. But it it shows that, yes, I've been converted. It's a sign of a disciple who's now following Jesus. That's what it always is. So he takes that. And then the fourth sign of conversion, he takes some food and he regains his strength. So before he was converted, he was all freaking out and he wouldn't eat and drink. And he's he's probably, it doesn't say, but he's probably like grieving over his sin, grieving over his life, repenting. I'm so sorrowful. I'm so broken. You know, but now he's forgiven. Joy has come into his soul. And now he can eat. His whole countenance is changing. And then, of course, the greatest evidence of his conversion is that he immediately starts preaching. And that's the big one. You know, it's, and it's the last panel, verses 20 to 31. We could call this Jesus commissioned Saul. So Jesus confronts Saul. Jesus converts Saul. Jesus commissions Saul. And uh, he just starts preaching. It's amazing. Um, and again, I, I think this is part of the uniqueness of Saul's story. There's something unique about verses 20 to 31. Because remember, he's not just being saved, but he's being commissioned to be an apostle. And so right away, he starts using his apostolic uh, uh, bona fides to start preaching. and He's, I've seen the risen Jesus. I've seen him with my own eyes. And blah, 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 he starts talking about Jesus everywhere, and people, people are amazed. It's, it's so, I love it. You know, here's Saul. He's this, like, really smart, highly educated guy. He, uh, he, he's been trained in the rabbinical schools. He's an expert in the Bible. And he was this lethal weapon against the church. And it's like the, the Holy Spirit special forces come in and capture the weapon, And now the weapon is being used for the kingdom of God. And now all that mental horsepower and all that erudition and learning is being uh, harnessed for God's purposes. I love that. It's like like when St. Augustine got saved and converted and all his mental genius is now used for the church. Or or a modern example like when Chuck Colson was converted, when he was born again, as he called it, and and his, his erudition and his intelligence were now leveraged for the gospel in his lifetime. And God does that. He's converted. And he's arguing, and no one can debate him. And so they try to run, kill him, and they run him out of town, and he goes back to Jerusalem, and they try to do the same thing there, and he leaves there. And so he's fulfilling what Jesus said would happen back in verse 15. In 16, he's preaching and suffering. That's his calling as an apostle. It's part of his thing. But the point is, it's clear he's been changed because look how he's behaving. I mean, people notice it. Look at verse 21. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? Isn't that the guy? And, and when you really converted, you can tell because you, you're different. And people notice it. The people who know you notice it. They look at you and they're like, isn't that the, 
aren't you the, but now you're, hmm. There's, there's something visible. You can't see if someone's converted. Again, it's a secret work in the soul. I, you, know, you can't look at someone and see, oh, I know they're converted. But converted people behave certain ways. And, and one thing they do is they, they do start sharing their faith. They start talking about the Lord, what the Lord has done for them. And so evangelism, just naturally telling what God has done in your life. But yeah, people look at you and they're like, wait a minute. I haven't seen you at the party for like three weeks. Like, where are you at? We're missing you there. Like, well, it's kind of weird, but something happened. I'm not partying anymore. Or, or, or maybe, uh, you, you know, you, you were really rough or aggressive or angry like Saul. You had a certain kind of mentality, and then that's changed, and, and now you're different. And people can notice that there's something different in your tone. You've softened. Like, like Godwin told in that great story about Bob McDonald last week, he, you know, Bob McDonald told me he was, he was a really tough guy. And he said, once I became a Christian, I, I never stopped crying. He'd cry all the time. He'd hear, he'd hear anything about Jesus, and this big, tough guy would start crying. And something changed in him, and it, it would just evidence itself in different ways. The changed people love Jesus. Changed people, you know, it's like, you, you're at church on Sunday? When did you start going to church on Sunday? What? I mean, Sunday, man, that's when you make the, the wings for Pat's Day. I mean, come on. Wait a minute. You're not on your boat Sunday morning? You're not skiing every Sunday morning? Like, what, what changed in your, your priorities? How did that happen? You're getting baptized? But you're like 50. How could you? What? Why are you getting baptized? Okay, I'll stop. Um, yeah, but, you know, everything changed. Even, even the kid, okay, even the kid who grows up in the church and they know all the church answers, and they know all the things to do. And this kid, because they've grown up in the church, they're not like, you know, a gang member or something. And everyone would look at their life, and they'd be like, that's a great church kid. You got a great kid. Good kid. Ah, great kid. You know, that kind of talk. But you as a parent, you know, as parents, we see each other. As we live together in our homes, parents see kids, and kids see parents. We know how we really are. And and when, they're, when, when a child has grown up in the church and knows all the right Sunday school answers and is, is not in involving gross immorality, is converted, there's a noticeable difference to those who see them. We see that kid, they just become more soft, more obedient. They don't fight you as much about stuff. They're they're starting to listen to you. You don't have to drag them to church the way you used to. They want to be there. Sometimes you even look in, in their room and you catch them reading their Bible by themselves and no one had twisted their arm to do it. And you're like, man, I gave up pummeling them about reading their Bible when they were 10, and suddenly here they are, 15, and they're reading their Bible on their own. Why are they reading their Bible on their own? Well, it's because they know Jesus now, and they're converted. It's the same reason that, you know, you guys text and Snapchat, like, constantly. It's because you're, you're like, you're, you're talking to your friends. You're like, oh, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything. Well, LOL, ha, 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 you know, all that stuff. <laughs> you're communicating with your friends. That's why Christians read the Bible and pray. That's, reading the Bible and praying is how you text and Snapchat with God. That's how you hear his word, and that's how you talk back to him. Those are the, the normal, everyday ways that, that, you know. So not reading your Bible, not praying every day is like going a day without texting and Snapchatting your friends. Can you imagine? <gasps> so, we, you know, we got we to do this. And, but suddenly kids are doing this on their own. Why? This is the point. They're converted. They know Jesus. They want to hang out with Jesus. It's normal when you have a relationship with someone, when you love someone. It just starts coming out. These are all different, all different evidences of conversion. Jesus can convert. 
converts Saul. Well, let me just close real quick with two, uh, two lessons. There could be a lot more lessons we could get out of this text, but two lessons for us. Uh, one lesson for believers and one lesson for those who don't believe the gospel. One lesson for Christians, one lesson for those who aren't Christians, one lesson for the converted, one for the unconverted. And here's the lesson for us who are Christians and are converted. And the lesson is Jesus can change anyone. Jesus can save anyone. Jesus can convert anyone. If he converted Saul, he can convert anyone. In fact, that's Saul's own application of his own story. Uh, Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 1174. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Page 1174. Look at verse 15, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus can save. Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy... This is why I was saved on the road to Damascus, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on him and reserve eternal life. So Saul's conversion is an example. It's exhibit A for you. So that you can look on that and be like, wow, God can save anyone. It's like, Saul's like, that's why I was, that's one of the reasons I was saved. So that every Christian everywhere could know that God can save anyone. And, and that's so encouraging. You know, who in your own life uh, would you identify as kind of conversion-proof? Do you have anyone that you're like, no way, uh, not going to happen. You've written them off. You used to pray for them. You used to talk to them. They totally stiff-armed you. You're like, that's it. I'm not doing it anymore. Anyone that you just feel like is so far gone, maybe it's a, a friend you have, someone you know who's just hostile, to the gospel, maybe a family member. Maybe you do have one of those kids who grew up in the church and now they've wandered. They're like on a spiritually different continent from you. You just think, ah, they're so far. We can't give up hope. You know, as Christians, if we really believe the gospel and we really believe the power of God to convert, we really have no right to ever give up. We have to keep praying. We have to keep hoping that God can change anyone at any time. And maybe, maybe that's a great New Year's resolution for you. Do you have someone who's like, conversion proof in your mind like you should make that your resolution this year i'm going to pray for that person you put them on your smartphone on the startup screen and whenever you turn it on you'll see their name or whatever you know do some trick like that and just remind yourself every day this year 2015 every day i want to pray for this person or those three people or whatever and pray that god will turn on the light pray that god will give me opportunities to be a fiber optic cable if they don't want me pray that god will bring a fiber optic cable in from somewhere else pray that they'll be converted we can pray like that and hey Isn't it great to know that God is still working on us as Christians? Because we're not fully changed yet. We're still in the process. The light has shown, but there's still more to work out. You know, we we shouldn't write other people off. Don't write yourself off either. Don't be like, ah, that's just me. I'll always be like that. You know, we accept sin in our lives, and we accept uh, aspects of our character that are unchristlike. And we say, well, that's just how I am. I've tried to fix that. I did a New Year's resolution last year. It didn't work. It's just who I am. Whatever. God will fix it in heaven someday. No, 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 no. Pray, God, this year. All right, my New Year's resolution this year, Lord, isn't to fix that thing in me. My New Year's resolution this year, Lord, is to pray that you would change me, 
by your power, by your grace. I'm going to rely upon you. May God give us grace to believe that things in our lives that are unchristlike can still be changed because Jesus can change and save anyone. And change begins a conversion but continues on throughout our lives. So that's, that's the lesson for Christians or a lesson for Christians is that Jesus can change anyone. Can you guess what the lesson is for non-Christians? Jesus can change anyone. He can save anybody. Nobody is beyond his saving power, not even you. Let me give you guys a verse. If you find yourself in the skeptic, doubter, questioning camp, look at Mark chapter 10. I'll stop after this. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It's on page 1003. This is a story about Jesus healing a blind person. Love this story. So what's the good news if you're spiritually blind? Jesus heals blind people of all types. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus can cause anyone to see. If you don't know Jesus or you haven't met him, or I, this is your prayer this year. This is your 2015 prayer. Make this your resolution. Pray this every day. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Jesus, if you're really there and there's really something to see that I'm missing, I want to see it. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Perhaps that's a prayer for all of us. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. O Lord, we need your changing, miraculous power in our lives in so many ways. And we come to you here at the beginning of the new year, resolving to not trust our resolutions, but resolving to call upon you to change us. O Lord, I pray that you would change Changed people that we love who just seem so far gone, so hostile to the name of Christ. Lord, would you change them? Lord, would you exert your saving power and convert us further, even those of us who are Christians? We, we pray, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Oh, Lord, wipe out sin in our lives. Help us to gain new ground in holiness and Christ-like character. Holy Spirit, show us where we are blind. And give us new eyes to see new areas where we can grow like Christ this year. 
And oh Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, oh, would you put that prayer of faith on their lips? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And God, cause blind eyes to see, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.